baby boomers. I used to be with it. Millennials. Okay, boomer. Generation X. What's going on? And Gen Z. <laughs> what do they have in common? Not a lot, it turns out. But one thing they can agree on is that this is the political podcast they want to listen to. Welcome to Not My Generation, the political podcast that looks at political events, news and happenings across the world and at home through a generational lens. Your hosts are Dr. Emily Stacy and Professor James Davenport, two political scientists from Rose State College. But the views expressed on this program are solely the views of the host and their guests and do not reflect the views of Rose State College, its administration, faculty, or students. Coming up on today's program. If you do ask it, ask Shanna first. Okay. What the heck are you guys talking about? <laughs> Enough about me. The older I get, the more I appreciate them, by the way. And now, here are James and Emily. And we are back. Not my generation. I'm James Davenport with my fabulous co-host, Dr. Emily Stacy. Felt like you forgot my name for no, just a second. No, no, no. I am getting a little older and, you know, the memory runs in and out a little bit. But uh, I am almost giddy for today. Me too. We've had two of our favorite political scientists with us. Dr. Brett Sharp from the University of Central Oklahoma. Hello. Dr. Shanna Padgham from Oklahoma City Community College. And I Hello. should disclose my, you know, conflicts of interest here, right? Um, you know, one of them is my academic father and uh, PhD advisor. Uh, and then the other one is my, like, homie, one of the only, like, moms that I like to text about Walt Disney World and things like that. Uh, but she also <laughs> employs me at OCCC, so we've got to, you know, we got to recognize the conflicts of interest here. Don't tell them they let us leave the uh, colleges, that we don't go other places like Disney. We are only always working. That's true. We are. You can, yeah, you can't prove it. We don't have pictures or anything. <laughs> we know you guys work harder than a lot of other people. So I'm just going to say, I've seen it firsthand. So, and... We have uh, the Oklahoma Political Science Association's annual conference coming up. Anybody want to talk about that for a second? Let's let the organizer talk about it. All right. Well, uh, we're having it at the University of Central Oklahoma in the uh, College of Liberal Arts building, and that'll be uh, Thursday and Friday, November 9th and 10th. And uh, we, we have lots of things that the community um, is welcome to attend. Awesome. Yeah. So if somebody is interested in attending – or maybe even sponsoring one of these things. All right, I get it. Go hold of me, um, Brett Sharp in the political science department, and the address is 100 North University Drive, Edmond, Oklahoma. And uh, my um, email address is uh, bsharp, B S H A R P, at uco.edu. Awesome. And we awesome. also have more information, and you can register at um, oklahomapoliticalscience.com. Awesome. So uh, what's going to be on tap? What are we going to be doing on the 9th and 10th? Well, it's, uh, um, I don't think anybody around the table knows, but we had one of our uh, members, um, Bob Darcy, who kind of reinvigorated this uh, OPSA um, organization back in 1993. But he recently did a history of the chapter and went back to all the meetings and stuff and um I think it goes back to 1951 and there were uh, um, two years that we did not meet. And so um, I think on our program, it's going to be known as the 70th annual 
wow. conference awesome. of the Oklahoma Political Science Association. It's one of the um, longest standing, most active state associations. Um, I think it's the envy of a lot of other states. So, yeah, that's great. That is great. That makes me really happy and very 70th proud. annual. What that's a fun cool. fact. Very cool. I know, right? So let me ask you guys this, all right? I'm always curious when I'm talking to um, other folks in the field. What attracted you to political science? Why that discipline? What? Why? Well, I have a couple of couple of answers. Um, one is I sort of became politically aware, and I had gotten a um, uh, a book of all the collected cartoons by Gary Trudeau. Uh, and this book was called The Doonesbury Chronicles, and it was really sort of all the stuff. And I would just you know read it chronologically. Uh, all the comic strips that he had done uh, uh, for Doonesbury um, through the Watergate era. And, um, you know, the other thing is I um, would often just sit and listen uh, while I played as a kid, um, listen to whatever my dad was watching, and he would be watching Washington Week in Review. And um, so you just sort of absorb that stuff by osmosis. Um, When I went to college, I thought, well, I'll – I don't know what to major in. I'd read a book on college majors. You're likely to change it a million times. And uh, I thought I was going to be a journalist. And, and uh, speaking of Watergate, uh, Ben Bradley was the editor of the Washington Post uh, over um, Woodward and Bernstein. And, and he was giving advice that I heard somewhere uh, that if you want um, to pursue a career in journalism, don't major in journalism. He said, I can teach you how to um, write, you know, uh, and do all the requisite things, but go learn about politics and go learn about public policy. And so I majored in um, political science. This was at Oklahoma State University. And this was still this, even though this was the uh, uh, early 80s, uh, we were still in the afterglow. Uh, It's kind of hard to imagine now that journalism was the major to have because it was just a cool major. Now, they don't even call it that anymore. But anyway, I kept trying to take journalism classes to minor in journalism, and they would say, nope, uh, we're too popular. We've reserved these classes for majors only. So I was only able to take a, a, a two or three classes. So just by default, I fell into uh, uh, political science. But it's been good for me. I have interest in everything, you know, and, and uh, political science, it touches every field of life. And I've, I've been lucky that, um, you know, I had a career in human resources management and that gets into everybody's job. And then my subfield in political science is public administration. It's also really interdisciplinary. And so um, that's kind of where I've arrived at. And being a professor, I used to be in human resources. It's one of the um, last few really good careers left. So I'm, I'm so honored to, to, to be part of the discipline. Shannon, how about you? Well, I never meant to be a political scientist. Um, so I, I took the advice and did not major in political science. Um, I wanted to be an environmental attorney. And so, um, which a lot of times people would say, what's the use in that? And I felt like I was before, before my time in a lot of ways when I was in undergrad. So I went to Oklahoma State got an environmental science degree with a kind of a subfield in policy. I've always been fascinated with policy. 
Um, I tell my students sometimes I really like to know policy so I know what the rules are so I can get around them. Uh, <laughs> and I got my master's. Um, I, I graduated at the economic downturn. And so in 2009, uh, everybody was like, we're not, there's not any jobs. So we're all going to grad school, which also made grad school a lot harder to get into because we all had the same brilliant idea. And I got my master's in environmental policy and conflict management at OSU. And I, um, I got married and my husband is in oil and gas. So I always argue that I can get along with anybody. If I can hang out with my husband who's in oil and gas and I'm an environmental policy person, then I can, you know, get along with any perspective for sure. And uh, anyway, he was in the oil patch in uh, Midland, Texas, and I we're not going to live here forever. So I might as well just keep going to school. Um, Texas Tech University had just kind of a specific uh, they're, they're political scientists. Many of them did environmental policy. Nobel, um, Nobel Prize winner Catherine Hayhoe happened to be on the faculty there. She won the Nobel Prize for her research on the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Wow. Um, so just having, they kind of had a niche area where I fit well to do sustainability policy. And so um, I got to be a true political scientist there and sat in all the seminars being like, what the heck are you guys talking about? It feels like you all have this pre-knowledge that I'm trying to fit. What's a heuristic? What does this mean? And, uh, but I got, so I got steeped in it very quickly and found a lot of people I really respect and their fields and how interesting things like political behavior is and just taking classes on the executive and, uh, you know, Congress. And uh, it was so deeply interesting, but um, also gave me respect for political science as a field of science. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, social sciences just aren't often regarded as the true sciences. But I can tell you, I have done enough statistics mm -hmm. to give legitimacy to the field for sure. And so um, being able, then we were fortunate uh, to move back to Oklahoma. I actually drove from here to Lubbock for a year and a half as I finished up my coursework. Oh, it was I was a different woman back then. I could not do that today. I have made that drive many times. My daughter went to Texas Tech, and we should have gone a lot more than we did, but we just dreaded that drive. It is every week there and back so I could come home and be with my husband. And so I put a lot of miles on I-40 for sure. And um, podcasts weren't as... Um, popular as they are now. And there was also not a cell phone reception in between the destinations to be able to stream one, but that would have been, or books on tape, like textbooks, mm -hmm. that audio function, you know how mm -hmm. great I would have been if I could have just been listening six hours each way to my <laughs> books that, so I'm, I'm glad for the future that they have more of that audio capability, but we just weren't quite there at the time. But um, anyway, so I just kind of fell into political science, but I've always kind of had an eye towards it. It just was a non-traditional path, but it's also, um, you know, as Dr. Sharp has mentioned, there's so many opportunities to do things that we find interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, right now I'm facilitating a grant through the DEQ with this glass crusher that um, I got the idea from a Dr. Pappas that we all know well from ECU mm -hmm. that takes glass and brings it back into sand. And so you can use it again um, and create it back into glass as the art department is going to, or just as sandbags at minimum, it's not going to the landfill. And so being able to just do neat and creative things that still fall under the political science realm is sure. what keeps it intriguing, you know, hopefully all the way to the, you know, into my career, which feels really close and really far away all at the same time. Speaking of generations. Uh, yeah, I hope it's very far away. Um, it's going by so quickly at the same time. Uh, so that's what how I got into this and how I stay into it. And the interaction with students is so fulfilling mm -hmm. and uh, getting a new, you know, cohort of students every year and getting to work with them and help 
them see opportunities has been, uh, it just makes this work deeply fulfilling. And as you said, um, it's one of the last great jobs out there. You know, it's a hard job sometimes, but I, I yeah. love it, yeah. you know. Agree. I love that you call them cohorts. I call them fresh meat. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yay. It's a new semester. Fresh meat. Yay. No, we love it. It's, so what about you, Emily? What 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 attracted you to political science? Uh, arguing. Uh, <laughs> arguing. Uh, I, I always kind of thought I was going to go to law school. I think a lot of us um, and a lot of our students certainly do. Um, but then I uh, walked into UCO, uh, my very first class, because I had done AP classes at Norman High High school, yay, NPS. Um, so my first class was actually with uh, the renowned, infamous uh, Randall Jones, Dr. Randall Jones, uh, International uh, Politics, International Relations intro. And so he walks in uh, and and anybody who knows Dr. Jones, uh, especially back in the day, he would always walk into the front of the classroom and he'd have this adorable little plastic comb that he'd pull out of his little pocket square. Right. Uh, and he'd wave it through his hair. And it just was so, just a Fonzarelli. I don't know. I just have that image in my head of Dr. Jones. And he was just so stately and and just infected me with with international relations, international politics. And I just, I knew. Uh, and then I found Lauren Gatch and it was over. Um, it was absolutely over for me. Uh, whenever I met Dr. Gatch, I, I kind of lived to uh, annoy him most of my existence, in fact, uh, through my undergraduate. And he uh, was uh, instrumental in my master's degree as well, um, was, was my advisor for that. Um, so I just, I don't know. I, I just adore, I'm, I'm uh, I guess we should just generationally uh, define ourselves. Shanna and I are both uh, millennials. She younger than I am, which we don't talk about. We don't. Uh, we don't at all <laughs> this talk is about. This the first time it's come <laughs> up. <laughs> yes, it's okay. We don't talk about it. Uh, and then, of course, my two uh, Gen Xers in the room. Uh, you know, uh, so Dan, you Gen X? You're Gen X? I am technically, if you look at the demographers, a baby boomer. Uh -huh. but, are you, know, you really? Yeah, but... I don't buy that at all. I don't either. Um <laughs> But, you know, there was a book, I taught a, a class called Politics of Generations mm -hmm. back in the 2000s, mm -hmm. and this um, these two historians, in fact, they kept their stuff up, but they had a, a book on generations, Strauss and Howe, and um, they said that I did not belong to the baby boomer, that I belonged oh. to what they call the 13th generation, which is, I guess, Generation X. Yeah. And um, my brother's seven years older than me. And, you know, that's the hippie stuff. And uh, no, we were the preppies. So we could we could see a clear delineation between the two generations. So, yeah, I never bought that. But back to Randy Jones, I um, this, you call him the stately Randy Jones. Uh, I discovered um, that he was a drum major for OSU. Really? Yes. And that was back when drum majors would do acrobatics and stuff like cheerleaders. Oh my goodness, really? Yeah. I can buy that. He is so lanky and, right? Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah, I totally see that. No, I just, uh, I love what's going on. I was, uh, the generational part of things. Um, September 11th happened whenever mm -hmm. I was a sophomore at Norman High. Uh, and so that deeply impacted my, our generation, the millennial generation. Uh, and I think that my kind of contribution uh, was to kind of research, right? And kind of see if I could find a pattern, what, you know, what causes terrorism, what, what uh, you know, makes people mm -hmm. come together, mobilize, et cetera. And so that kind of moved into social movement theory eventually. Mm -hmm. And you've been on the PhD. cutting edge of that. I mean, I, appreciate it. I think it really is the generational part of, of, of your perspective is what allowed you to say that all, all the current theories about how social movements, you know, mobilize in the first place don't apply anymore. Yeah. yeah. The rules, I appreciate that. Rules are different. 
Indeed. So enough about me. I talk all the time. Well, speaking of generations and 9-11, is it not maddening when your students can't tell you where they were for 9-11, let alone if they were even alive for it? I'm like, I'm sorry. I am three years older than you. I don't understand uh, how it could be that. And so it's just like the gap between us and our students just grows every year. And um, I'm like facing my own mortality at this point. (laughs) No, you know, I do this in my American Federal Government. In fact, I did it uh, at OCCC just the other day um, because demographically that class is very young Um, I have them raise their hands if they were born before uh, 2003 and inevitably it's me uh, and maybe like two other three other people in the room and it's like oh hey by the way if you were you know born uh, you know before or after I guess technically March uh, 2003 you've never lived in a time of peace and that kind of smacks them in the face like oh Hi, um, you know, because we don't see the images of war every day, mm-hmm. uh, but we're still under that war authorization um, from March in 2003. And so it's it's one of those kind of galling things. Like, why do you guys not know this? You you weren't alive uh, for the war authorization and now you are paying taxes, um, you know. Yeah, but they're not subject. They're not subject to the draft right now. They're not. They're I'm, not and and right. I'm not riling them up about the draft. Most of I them just... are not. Uh, <laughs> well, what I mean is. War today does not impact us like it did, you know, uh, Vietnam era and earlier. It's not in your face. It's not. Yeah, You're not seeing at your door um, the numbers of people who are impacted in in a dramatic way. Uh, And so they they literally don't know. Right. Many of them, they don't know what's going on. Um, I love the fact that you know, we can often have such a variety of ages in the class. So I, love, yes. I taught a summer class uh, this year and I had a 65 year old in that class. And I love those because those people bring a whole wealth of experience to the table that, you know, we can draw that out and let them share some of that with some of the the younger students that, that can be really beneficial. And they, depending on it, this this particular gentleman was very, very engaged and really, really liked engaging with younger students. He wasn't intimidated by that or didn't feel, you know, uh, uh, that that he didn't have something to offer. And so that when you have somebody like that and you have a good class, uh, you can really get some some conversations going and sharing some ideas and information across that the generations kind of a thing. So, yeah. Yeah. all right. So what um, what news events are we following right now? What's uh, We have a speaker of the house. Finally. Yes. Mm-hmm. Everybody's excited. I can tell everybody is just excited about you, that. You said a fact. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I can confirm. Are you sure that, that, you, that it's not an alternative fact? I think not, it's right? a true fact. <laughs> For now. It could be what happens in the, during this podcast. Who can say what, what we're going to walk out of in this room? So, okay. So here's my question. What's going to prevent us being right back in this place, say in January, after now Speaker Johnson has to negotiate to keep the government open, right? What's going to keep us from being right back here? I mean, because the moment he does that, the same group is still going to be out there not happy, right? Are they banking on him not negotiating? Uh, maybe, maybe they are. And which group are you talking about? The moderates or the, well, uh, the, the Gates, the Gates faction, yeah. right? What do they call? I the heard terrorists. today they're calling them the Gates Eight or something Ugh, like that. Sure. 
Uh, <laughs> How cute. <laughs> so, Very um, catchy. Um, I don't see, it was the moderates that basically, I, I don't want to say caved. Oh, but, they belly up. Well, like, listen, uh, here's the thing about moderates. And, and it's something that. This ought to be good. The, the older. So excited for yeah, what you're right. about to say. The older I get, the more I appreciate them, by the way. But at the end of the day, the moderates want a functioning government. Yes. And they're going to cave because they don't want to go another two or three weeks without a House of Representatives that can actually do something. That faction, the Gates faction, they wouldn't have cared. They would have been just fine going another two or three weeks without a speaker, right? It didn't impact them. Uh, And so, yeah, the moderates were always going to be the ones who end up giving in because they want a functioning government. Uh, but I just don't see, they're not going to be the ones, I mean, none of those folks are going to come January, offer a motion to vacate the chair, right? I just don't think any of that group is going to, but it'll be the other faction. If Johnson does negotiate with, with Democrats, if he gives in and gives, and it's something that those folks don't like, I just don't see how we're not right back here in, in a couple of months. Does anybody disagree with that? Anybody want to say why we're not going to be in that situation? I don't disagree. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, it just looks like we're in a horrible situation. It's not like things aren't going on in the world. We're not paying attention to Ukraine right now because of all the stuff going on with Israel and Hamas, but those two burning um, fires are out there in the world. And, um, you know, there's only so much a president can do. Right. Yeah. Dr. Padgham, anything? Oh, so much. Call, call you out. So much. It's just, it is inevitable, I think, that unless, I mean, it, unless he behaves in a way that is really detrimental to, I mean, meeting the goals of the Gates 8 is really problematic for the rest of us. And so, um, and maybe he'll stay in line with that. It sounds like he's might be the perfect person for that but um to what ends is what we'll end up having a future podcast about for sure like well it's he's still there but this is what happened um otherwise we're back here again we're um and i mean as a political scientist i understand what the democrats are up to Mm -hmm. as a taxpaying citizen who tries to communicate to students about behavior and that we should elect respectable people who behave in a way that makes government function. I would like to see the Democrats do something different here. You know, the the Democrats in completely abstaining got a much, much more extreme speaker as a result. If the, if, if a few Democrats, what is eight would have came to the table, we would have a completely different speaker. But And I realize that the Democrats are holding the position as a political scientist. I understand what they're up to. But it is, I mean, I start every day with my students of what's going on in the world and we talk current events. And it's taken years off my life. <laughs> Trying to explain what's happening is just, and it's been this way since I started at OCCC in uh, August of 2016, thinking I just graduated. I'm so steeped in this. I understand everything. I am so fresh in this. And then in November saying everything I learned was a lie. I don't understand how government works. I can't speak to this well. I'm embarrassed. What I should go back to environmental science. Labs are much more predictable. Uh, so, you know, that. I, so that's kind of my take is that I 
would like to see a lot of folks behave differently. But when we talk about generationally, I'm always telling my students about like, you know, your generation and my generation, we've been together, we decide every election from here on out, we've got the numbers. But instead, our generations choose to abstain and they don't pay attention. And therefore, I tell them all the time, we get the government we deserve. We're not engaged. But looking at this I want to say you choose the word nonsense. Mm-hmm. I can see why it's easier to stream TikTok mm-hmm. than it is to pay attention because there's so much going on. Because speaking of generations, we've never had a generation be so inundated with information to have lived in a war their entire lifetime that they're filtering out information. And I can't say that I blame them for the sake of their mental health, but then we end up in this mess. Right here. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned science. Um, there was a, a colleague of mine, one of our adjunct professors, David Schneider. Does anybody know? Anyway, he he proffered uh, a scientific explanation for what's going on in politics that I find really attractive. And he he said back, um, I guess, in, in 2016, they ramped up the Hadron Collider in Europe and that somehow it's tilted our universe into a little bit of an alternate universe. And that's what's given us Trump and this you know, where the gravity doesn't work in politics anymore. And anyway, yeah, I've been um, lost ever since then about um, the the laws of politics don't seem to apply. You know, a Republican who criticizes, you know, a, a war hero. Now, how wasn't that immediately? I mean, that was early on. And, right. and there's so right. much that has happened since then. I can't even remember it all. Do you remember, sir, where you were? In November of 2016? No, is it going to be in Wales or something? Yeah, totally. Wow. Right. <laughs> I, defend, I defended I, I defended my dissertation like four days before Trump was elected. We were in Wales. That was a fun uh, yeah. memory, yes. That, that, that was a good distraction. <laughs> it so. was a, for half a second, yeah. Uh, speaking of Israel, I had uh, Dr. Muhammad on our campus yesterday. It was so lovely oh, to great. see him again. Uh, he was as boisterous and wonderful as ever explaining the uh, the current crisis. It was uh, useful for our students, I think. What do you think, Davenport? Did we yeah. do okay? No, I thought it, it was very informative. Uh, very, You know, there were some things that um, I think both present presenters uh, kind of skimmed over that I think may have given a little bit more layered context to yeah. some of this stuff. But I only uh, gave them an hour and 15 minutes right. so that, to, to unravel yeah. the Middle East. Um, <laughs> But I think uh, on the whole, it gives some some very good background as to the complexities of what's going on there, right? And that, that recording will be up on the Rose State YouTube page at some point next week, by the way. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I'm thinking about asking a question to you guys. I'm going to hold it for now okay. because I, I'm not sure I want to ask it. And, and I'm not sure I want you to either sure with that lead in. I'm not sure I want to ask it. I do want to ask it. I'm just not sure I want to ask it in a public forum type of thing. So maybe we'll, you know we'll come back to that. These, right? If you do ask it, uh, ask Shanna first. Okay. All right. I got you. I got you. Um, all right. So, uh, yes, we've got um, the conflict in um, Israel and Gaza. We have the Ukraine thing going on. We have uh, a continuing resolution that's going to expire early next month. Uh, and we've got elections coming up, right? And it looks like, I'm going to start with that that last one. It looks like we're going to get Trump-Biden round two. Now, 
what drives me nuts about this is nobody wants Trump-Biden round two. And yet that's where we're headed, it seems. Is there any scenario that you see that that isn't what we're voting on next November? Outside of natural causes? <laughs> Which... We do not wish we for do not absolutely not. I would like to affirm yeah. we do not wish for that. But if we're we're looking at scenarios, this just reminds me. Uh, this is a diversion, but it reminds me. Uh, I ask my students all the time when we're talking about the presidency. You know, is there a way to remove a president without impeaching them? And almost invariably, the first answer is assassination. And I'm like. It almost all the time. Really? Yeah. You, you begged like, the question, though. That's uh, what immediately popped in my well, mind. That's where they go. And so, uh, uh, but this this the same kind of mentality is, is uh, well, kind of the natural remove, causes. Is it the 23rd Amendment? 25th Amendment. 25th yeah. Amendment. If they can't do that with Trump, then I don't think any president's going, that's going to happen. I just, I think the, if you're a sitting vice president, you're ending your career. If you send, a, if you initiate a process to remove the president you're serving. I just think you are. Well, yeah, and, and Mike Pence made that calculation, obviously, right. but then right. also got a chance and to didn't, pay And it didn't really right? pay off for him to, to stay all. loyal. Certainly but not. so you think absent any kind of health issues by either of those two folks, that's who we're going to end I up mean, with. If I'm being a good political scientist and realistic, yes. I mean, but I, you know, as I tell my students, like we haven't even gone through the primaries yet. There is no reason for this outcome but it's just that's where the the political the sentiment is it's all polling with you know without a shadow of a doubt and so um once again we get the government we deserve we do not have to have these be the two candidates now i mean the democrats are going to stick with biden no matter what um and but not because they're excited about not it. because no right. just the incumbency and just you know, and, and he called into question for a while whether or not he was going to run. He kind of signaled as as he ran the first time that this could be a first term president. I thought that they were going to do more to prop up Kamala. I did too. I yeah, would. That's that yeah. what if you know several years ago, if you would ask me that, I would say they were putting her in a great place to kind of be a de facto incumbent, sort of that she'd been shine so brightly, and then that's just really not at all how it played out. Yeah. I get the impression that there has been on the Democrat side some disappointment in her. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if it's a disappointment in her performance or a disappointment in her not having enough opportunities, but there doesn't yeah. seem to be, because I agreed with you. I thought this was, mm -hmm. this was going to be kind of the master plan, Agreed. if you will. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it just never has panned out that way. And I'm not sure why, uh, but I, I don't get the sense that she's been able to use that position to garner the kind of um, coalition that she would need to to present herself as, obviously, I'm the heir apparent. And, and I, I'm not sure what was going on there. Early in the administration, she had kind of stepped on a few toes. She was taking a lot of the state calls, things like that, um, with, with different foreign leaders, and they kind of pulled her back, right? Um, and I think that after you do that once with a lady like Kamala, you probably are not going to get the full, full politician mm -hmm. mode. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know. I, I agree. I don't think that 
number one, um, she's viable uh, personally at a, at a national level, especially with this generation uh, of Democrats. We see them. There are students. Uh, a lot of them, I accuse them all the time uh, of being purists, right? These This generation of progressive liberals, uh, like the Bernie bros, right, died in the wool, um, they see her as basically Nixon, right? They see her as a Republican um, based on her uh, her record, right, as a district attorney in California, right? Um, and so there are a lot of liberals that are not going to swallow Kamala Harris yeah. at all. Um, so the Democrats really need to start looking at what the future is. Um, obviously, Biden is 2024, but what are you doing in, in 2028? What are you doing in 32? What are you doing? Who is next? I mean, both parties seem to have this problem of yeah. uh, no. you've got for different reasons, you have Biden as the choice for Democrats right. uh, because nobody else can get that the, enough of that Democrat coalition behind them, right? right? And to not scare away moderates, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's the goal here is they don't want to scare away moderates, right? Uh, Trump is just, uh, he, is, he has dominated Republican politics since he came on yep. the scene. And nobody seems to be able to eat into, it doesn't matter what he does. I was I was struck. So he came out uh, in the last couple of weeks and he was saying how stupid Israel was and how smart Hamas was. And I thought, well, this is going to eat into the, some of that evangelical support yeah. that because he's started. No, no, it has not. Right. Um he uh, he made another statement about uh, abortion and how he thought you know the Republicans were, and I thought that's going to cost. It. Nothing he says seems to impact uh, the level of support he has, uh, and nobody you know I think like a lot of people thought well maybe DeSantis, but DeSantis has just kind of floated out there and uh, I think he's plateaued a little bit, and nobody else has has even shown the capability of competing with Trump. So this seems, it, it's a really weird situation. And, and um, you talked about 2016 and like, I don't know anything. A concept that I have become much more uh, attuned to lately is intellectual humility, <laughs> right? <laughs> what I think I know, I might not actually know. And, and this is one of those situations where I just can't figure out these dynamics uh, on that side of, of things. And do we have a president who's going to, a, pre, a former president who's going to run for office from a jail in Georgia? Right. That um, seems possible, it right? It does. Well, and his attorneys and all the news out this week about, uh, you know, plea deals. And mm -hmm. it's not, does not bode well for Trump, but that's in a rational world. And so I don't know if that's, we might be in the alternative universe where that's actually better right. somehow. Yeah. And so predicting these outcomes. Well, and I'm going to tell you, I talked to recently some very Trump kind of, and they're convinced it's all, this is all just a setup to get Trump and uh, they twisted these arms. And I'm like, they wouldn't have had anything to twist arms with if these folks hadn't broken the law, right? right? The reason they pled guilty is because they were caught. Yeah. Uh, and yet um, it does, it just, it makes no difference to these folks. They're going to rationalize away all of this uh, uh, to maintain their support for him. And I do not understand that. So the evangelicals, you know, you and I think of evangelicals in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the um, Pew Research has done some um, 
investigation into people who label themselves as evangelicals, and most of them don't go to church. Most yeah, of them don't really, look really at interesting. Yeah. this as the end times yeah. in terms of revelations or whatever. That's not part of their equation. So they're not looking at Israel in the same way that the evangelicals that uh, we you know, study. Sure. Um, there's a, a professor down at OU, uh, Sam Perry, who's written a couple of books on Christian nationalism. And that's one of the things that they pull out of that too is a lot of these folks that fall under that, that banner are not really that really religious at all. Right. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, in their research, the more committed they were to their faith, the less likely they were to be uh, Christian nationalists. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's just weird how these labels play out and what people think they're doing in, in this And I don't matter. know if uh, all of you are having trouble teaching the ideologies, American ideologies of liberalism and conservatism. I thought I had that down. I can't define these things anymore. I had trouble with the Democratic Party even being, you know, going to talk talking about Andrew Jackson saying that it's the party for the common man and how that's evolved and, and it's, uh, it's the party for um, the worker and the little people and the disadvantaged. And it seems to be a college of liberal elites, you know, college educated um, elites. And then the Republican Party apparently has no ideology at all except for homage to this, um, like a cult, like, right. you know, to, yeah. to well, a leader. In 2020, what they do, they they said, we're not going to create a platform. Mm -hmm. We're just, whatever yeah. Trump yeah. says is our platform, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it does feel like there's kind of a realignment of the parties mm -hmm. happening. Uh, Republicans are trying to go after kind of that, that worker, uh, you know, uh, middle class, uh, lower class and workers and saying- In 2016, you know, pretty yeah. successfully. Yeah. 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 So they seem to go with that the Democrat Party increasingly is the the party of college educated uh, people, uh, and and you know, twenty years ago it was just, we were talking about these in reverse, yeah, exactly. right? Uh, so uh, it is, and, and yeah, when I'm teaching on on ideologies, it's like I I just have to tell them, look, this is the traditional way mm -hmm. we've explained these, but you need to understand there's a lot of flex going on. There's a lot of movement here and there and things that uh, I thought were conservative kind of principles today don't seem to be so much. And, and I'm having trouble kind of identifying. I speak to um, a group of young conservatives fairly regularly. And every time I do, I'm struck by how what I knew as con conservatism in the 80s and 90s is not where these folks are Free today. trade, pro-defense, right. mm -hmm. uh, fiscal uh, responsibility. Yeah, none of that is is uh, at play or, or at the heart of what they're looking at now. It's just really, really interesting to me. Well, it has to be hard as a uh, difficult as a student saying, okay, well, I'm, you know, I can vote now. I need to figure out how do I align myself and being like, I have no idea where I fit in all of this. And so it, you can see why. They're retreating from that, but they have many, many political opinions and positions. They just don't know how to categorize them well and utilize the vehicle that is voting that really comes with these outcomes. But they are very, very impactful. They're participating. They're volunteering. They're definitely engaging and voicing their opinion. But the part where, you know, we're political scientists being like, well, what about this, this last piece we need you to do here? And they're like, I don't really like that label so much. Okay. Well, how do how do we reconcile these things to get a government that we're at least 
because nobody's happy right yes. now, you know, like you would think that people would be thrilled. I guess Matt Gates is currently happy right this second. Um, but, you know, he was furious a couple of weeks right. ago right. and uh, and he and he has to stay in the news by being furious and making people right. furious. And so it's just going to be the next thing. Well, we're all trying to do the good work of trying to explain to students and podcast listeners, whoever you may be, uh, you know, how this stuff works and what what can we anticipate tomorrow? And that is the challenge of it all. Well, I'm Emily and I go back and forth about this all the time. She's all about you young people need to vote. You need to get out there. And, 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 and I think two things. I do think there's a little bit of selection bias in here is we think these people in these ages are active, but that's because the ones that are, we see. Right. There's a whole lot we don't see that I don't think are very active in, in any uh, participatory way, not just voting, but in other areas. Uh, and uh, and I'm not sure that the incentives are aligned right to get them too active uh, at this point in time. Uh, but it's for sure true by not being active there. Emily keeps telling them this all the time. You're handing decision making authority. You're having power over your life to somebody else who might not have the same ideas about what your life should be like as, as you do. I mean, there might not be incentive the first time, but once you get the person in who cares about the policies that, you know, uh, are relatable to your life, your kitchen table, your pocketbook, whatever it may be, then the incentive is there to you keep that person in office, right? right? It's uh, it's wild. Before, I know I feel, I can feel you, I can feel the cloud of him about to wrap up. Uh, so before you do that, uh, I would <laughs> is like... That it is the cloud that's yeah. happening? I can <laughs> feel it, yeah. I was thinking we're going to go through lunch and that's going to be different, but that's okay. It's, it's, a, it's a thing, I just know. Um, I did want to mention last night and, and kind of pulling this back into... Uh, the conversation about presidential candidates, um, we carried out a military uh, strike, airstrikes, uh, on Iranian proxies in Syria last night um, in retaliation for the Americans who uh, were attacked by Iran uh, earlier this week. And so this is, right, the escalation is here. It's now, um, right now. And I think we talked a little bit about it on the last podcast. Um, the United States is, we're, we're fully in this at this point. Um this is crucial. This is a crucial time. I lose, I lose words about it because it is, it's such a different situation, I think, than we have been in in a really long time as it relates to Israel um, and American foreign policy. And we're in a different conflict than we've been in in a while. And whenever we are uh, attacking Iranian proxies, because we know uh, that they're linked to both Hamas and Hezbollah, um, this is this is going to get bigger and it's going to escalate further. So here's the question. Who benefits from us being embroiled in this? Russia and China? Yeah. I, bing, bing, bing. I think that's yeah. correct, right? Yeah. Uh, we have less ability to focus on these other mm -hmm. these other areas, right? Yep. Now, the question I have is. Is this the question you did not want? No, to ask? this is not that question. This is not. I, I've decided to hold that question to a later date. Maybe that'll be the last thing you say, and then you can close the podcast off. At least so we know what you're. Doctor Sharp is not going to let this go. You're going to have to ask the question. But um, you know, I am sympathetic to the argument that. Israel can take this to the point that it loses any goodwill it had from the the attacks, yes. right? I am sympathetic to that. That we're point. almost to that point. I'm just wondering. All right, let's say you were in charge, 
let's say you're the prime minister of Israel. What's the correct response here? Because I haven't seen anybody who have argued on this, don't go too far, saying, well, what is the correct way of dealing with this? Uh, I just hear him saying, don't go too far, right? Uh, but you had um, 1,400, as the last count I saw, roughly 1,400 of your citizens, and not just Israelis, by the way, but uh, other nationalities as well. There are some Americans that are held, being held hostage, so you have roughly 200 hostages, in your mind, what is the correct response? Well, you know, I, I teach decision analysis, and you can have an optimal decision, but that optimal decision may still have bad consequences. So sometimes you really have no no way out. It's either Hobson's choice or um, a no-win scenario like the Star Trek Kobayashi Maru. You know, you sometimes you just don't you just don't know, or Sophie's choice from the movie. Um, so. To me, it's just a a tough spot. And I think a lot of, I think um, Biden has kind of commented on that as well. So it's like, you know, there's going to be a ground invasion. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's like keeping us out of uh, Afghanistan after uh, 9-11, you know, we were going to go in. Right. So Don't go too far is don't commit international war crimes that are visible and public. And that is what... I mean, period. That's that's all we mean by that. And then the perception, you know, in this age of real fake news yes. where you can get, you know, AI to oh, yeah. morph stuff into yeah. um, where you see pictures and sound mm-hmm. of things doing something yeah. that, that happened with the hospital there yeah. in Gaza. Um, it doesn't even have to happen. Right. You can get a, a big population to believe it. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and, you know, I'm not sure, you know, to what extent does the U.S. have any moral authority on that? How many civilians did we kill in Iraq and Afghanistan in our our war against, you know, terror or the Taliban or whoever, right? right? Um, uh, I'm not sure how we can sit there and say it's okay for us to do it. But not for you. I do like the way Biden framed it. Like, don't make the same mistakes we did. Yes. Like taking that posture takes yeah. a very different tone. I, yeah. And I, I tend to agree with that approach. And and speaking of, again back to to moderates, you know, it seems like that's the voices that we're missing right now in this yeah. conversation, right? Uh, and you hear the extremists, you hear the extremist comments in uh, from Israeli government officials. You hear, you know, the extremist rhetoric from uh, Palestinians. Uh, I don't hear any moderate voices saying, maybe we should back up a second. Maybe we should take a deep breath and say. Is there a way out of this without more carnage? Uh, but I don't know what that way would be. And, and, and if anybody knew, right. I have to assume we would have pursued that already. But the political capital that goes along with even mentioning a ceasefire at this point in an election year is almost a, a death knell for a lot of these moderates that we're talking about. So, I mean, and, and again, it goes back to that hyperpolarization. I have one, one suggestion that I would, if, if I was in Israel and, and we're right now pre, we haven't la- launched a ground evasion yet. I would say we're going to pause our campaign for 48 hours dependent upon the return of the hostages and see if something like that couldn't materialize. Now, maybe it wouldn't, I don't know, but, uh, 
But at least that would, on their side, say, hey, we're willing to listen sure. to the international community. Yeah. We are willing to um, to say what we want is, first and foremost, those hostages. We can deal with Hamas later, right? Uh, and we will we will refrain from wreaking any more havoc and, and carnage on the people of Gaza if we get those hostages yeah. back. And let put the ball in Hamas's court yeah. and see, mm-hmm. see. At that point, if Hamas said, no, we're keeping them, mm-hmm. I don't know what you expect them At to do. At that point, yeah. I really don't. Yeah, and it seems like Hamas is, I mean, a, at least mildly willing um, to let some of these hostages go, as you saw they, they, earlier this they week. They dribbled out a few, right? Yeah, yeah. specifically elderly uh, women, et cetera. Um, so it seems like the ones that are kind of harder to maybe maintain, keep safe, et cetera, um, that they're more willing to kind of let well, go, theoretically, think, at this point anyway. I think we know if any of those hostages die while they're in Hamas's mm-hmm. captivity, I think that's the end. I, there's no, there's no going back from that point, right? They've got to know that. So, any any thoughts of wisdom on on any of that? How do we get out of this situation without? Uh, um, I'm really good at depressing the table. I'm sorry. There's a cloud you were talking about. Now I feel it. I found the cloud. Sorry. Well, I have to look at Dr. Stacy for that one because that's just not my area. Yeah, it's not mine either. I follow it enough, closely enough to understand, and I really appreciated the presentations that, that we had yesterday uh, that give. And, and it's a complex situation. I don't think anybody who wants to come in, oh, there's a simple way of getting this. There is no simple way of resolving it. No, and there's no winner, right? Like we said last time, there's no winner. There's no right side to this issue. Um, Each side has its own claims. I think each side has some valid claims. Uh, At some point, if you want peace, you've got to lay down some of that. And you've got to say, you know what, for the sake of long-term peace and stability, uh, we're going to have to let go of some of these uh, lingering hostilities, if you will. And it does, just doesn't seem like anybody's willing to do that yet. And it's it, the same thing is true in American politics right now, right? Nobody's willing to let go of any lingering hostilities on our side either. Except for the moderates. The moderates, Ooh, you know. Sorry, full circle. Well, you know, if, if, if the, the thing about moderates is the, the each, side, each side of extremists will just say, well, they just have no principles, right? They have no principles. And so... Uh, I don't know about that, but I have certainly enjoyed this conversation. Really glad you guys agreed to come on and visit with us. Uh, Give me a plug about something. Tell me something uh, that we can leave with our audience before we get out of here. Well, I just want to say what a privilege it was to be here with you two and with Dr. Padgham. Um, So that was nice. That's not a plug, but. Hey, it's, a, it's a plug for the show. We'll take that. Was, this was a total delight. Um, well, as far as plugs go, the Oklahoma Political Science Association, if you like these sorts of conversations, which clearly you do if you were listening to this, uh, you know, you could have two full days of this at our conference. So on November 9th and 10th, uh, Dr. Sharp has worked hard to put together like a breadth of Uh, you know, topics to address and that there's something for everyone at our conference and many different perspectives with experts having panels and roundtables to 
address these variety of topics. My only downside is that I want to attend them all. And a lot of times they're happening simultaneously. And so you have to make a choice, but there's just such a breadth of opportunity. And it's nice to get political scientists together to hear a variety of perspectives in all the different fields in which people do hold expertise and helps um, any of us attending uh, broaden our knowledge base. And we want to have more people attend and experience that with us. And so we hope that even if you're not a political scientist, I hope that you will consider joining us at UCO. And, and that Friday, uh, November 10th, we're partnering with the Oklahoma Sociological Association. Mm-hmm. So we're fitting on kind of co-hosting the same conference. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Hey, We uh, had another great show. Indeed. We'll see everybody next time. Bye-bye. Bye. We love communication that goes both ways, not just you listening to us pontificate. We would love to hear from our audience. If you have comments, suggestions, or would like to contact us about possibly being a guest on the show, please email notmygeneration at raider.rose.edu.